so this morning, we're going to dive back into the word. And before we do, I want to pray because I, I will tell you that the text we're about to dive into is a controversial text. It's difficult. It's a difficult study, but I enjoyed it very much. And so let's ask God to be our navigation, our guide here in the truth. Father, this morning we are about to open your word and know that your word is power. We know that your word is the power of God into salvation, this gospel message, transforming lives. Lord, you have chosen to preserve your word in a language that we can understand, and it's the guide for our life. It's the way that we know you. It's the way we interact with you. And so we ask this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law, that our lives would be transformed because we've We've been a part of you today in the word of God and that your spirit would be our teacher here today. And we thank you for this in Jesus name. Amen. Open your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Now let me set the stage so you know where we are. We've been through this journey. If you're first time with us, we're studying the book of Mark. And the reason for it is because the book of Mark teaches how Jesus, the servant of God, the son of God, but as the servant of God, how he came to be uh, the Savior, shows the life of Christ, but also how did Jesus train disciples to further the church? Because there's coming a day in this study, Jesus is going to be crucified. Jesus will resurrect. Jesus will ascend up into heaven. And when he does that, he's commissioning those disciples to go into all the world and make disciples just like we are commissioned still today, 2,000 years later. So in order to train these men for ministry so they'll be fit for the ministry, so they don't fizzle out somewhere along the way, there are key things Jesus has to teach them to get them prepared for this moment. Well, they've been traveling up in the northern region around the Sea of Galilee, and now they're finished with that part, and you're in the final months of Jesus' life ministry before he goes to the cross. So they tr start going south. And as they're going south, they're eventually going to make their way to Jerusalem, but they're now in the region of Judea. Now, this is an area where John the Baptist was before, and he was preaching in this area. So just to give you some geographic mindset, you're north of Jerusalem, but not as far north as the Sea of Galilee. So as they come down into this region, he's, Jesus is going to be confronted by the religious leadership again. And so this is where we begin our study. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, and multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. Now, from the same text of Matthew chapter 19, teaching the same storyline in verse 3, the question was posed, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, where is this coming from? They're testing Jesus, not necessarily over his knowledge of the scripture, because he has already demonstrated he is very much, obviously, knowledgeable of the scripture. So the test looks a little different. There are basically three things that are trying to accomplish here. One is, because this is the same area where John the Baptist was preaching before. You remember, John the Baptist is the one who called out Herod the king for the fact that he had divorced his wife went up and took his brother's wife and made her to become his wife. And John the Baptist called him out for it and said, hey, dude, you're committing adultery in what you're doing. Well, well, Herod's wife, Herodias, she hated him. So at the first opportunity, it became perfect. Obviously, they ordered up John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so John the Baptist was then a martyr for the faith on behalf of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the truth. 
Well, so this is a setup question for Jesus. Depending on how he answers the question, he could really hack off Herod and maybe the same thing that happened for John the Baptist would happen to Jesus and they'd behead him. But the religious leaders were divided in their camps as well. You had the conservative religious leaders who had the, the rabbi school of Shammai. And in his school, he would teach that divorce would only take place if there was sexual immorality in the marriage. But then there, there was the more liberal group that was the rabbi of Hillel. And he would say that you could divorce for any cause. Any cause. And that's why they posed this question. So what do you say, Jesus? Is it divorce for any cause? So as you might imagine, the topic of discussion today is not just about divorce, but we're going to talk about the sanctity of marriage. The subject of divorce is so sensitive, Amy can probably tell you, I haven't slept well all week. <laughs> because this subject is so sensitive and so hard and hurtful for probably every person in this room has either experienced this in your own family or someone very close to you. And because of that, there's pain associated with that. There's discomfort when the subject is brought up. There's possibly things that have happened even in the church realm and Christianity that, that left some significant wounds when it comes to this particular subject. And so now the Pharisees come along asking Jesus this same question. And so we want to approach this from a biblical perspective of what does the Bible say about this? Well, they had taken this position, the question in is posed, can you, decide, can you divorce for any cause? Well, this is derived out of Deuteronomy chapter 24, so we'll go back to the Mosaic Law, because this is what they're holding on to, which does give the right of divorce. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 24, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. He writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. And when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. Well, that text goes on to say that if, if she goes to uh, be the wife of another man, but then he detests her also and he divorces her, she cannot go back to the first husband or they would be in an uh, adulterous relationship. But here's what you do see in this is... Obviously, even in the law, there was a written bill of divorcement. So the, the idea of it or the reality of divorce is very real in the scripture. The reason for it becomes a little bit unclear, it seems, because in this patriarchal society where the, there's, no, there's no words here given about a woman divorcing a man. It's always on the man divorcing the woman until you get into what Jesus has to say. But then, if you observe here, the... the the question and phrase is, he has found some uncleanness in her. And that is the ambiguity that these pharisaical leaders have divided their camp over on what do they believe about marriage and divorce and when you can and when you can't. Now, mind you, we are operating here at this point in this message out of the, out of the uh, Mosaic Law. So everybody just relax for a second. I'm giving you the backdrop to what is happening here and then what do we do with it now? When you go back to Mark chapter 10, what did Jesus say? Well, he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? 
Well, they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce to dismiss her. Well, this obviously validated, was there a bill of divorce? Yes. Unto what? Well, the intent here was to protect a woman from being discarded and destitute and defenseless. Because without this written bill of divorcement, she would not have any husband who would ever take her into his home and be, be her husbandman. So this bill of divorcement would allow her then to be able to go and be the wife to another man. So it was actually for protection. This bill of divorcement would allow her to remarry. Well, Jesus then answers in verse 5, and he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Because they're questioning that, why did did Moses give us this then? And Jesus answers the question, it's because of sin. And Jesus will explain why this is the case here in just a moment. But for right now, hold this. It was because of sin that entered into the equation that this is why God gave, or Moses gave this bill of divorcement in Deuteronomy 24. Now this looks forward to some things. First, it... It took care of the lustful appetites that you would see in men. And there were many examples of this even in the Mosaic Law where men would take advantage of women and sexual immorality would take place in relationships. This also anticipated, as the law did, when Israel would go into the promised land and they would now possess this land, they were given so many warnings, curses and and blessings that if you obey the word of God, this is what it's going to look like. But here's one of the things that happened. When you go into that land, they were warned, do not take and marry the wives of the Gentiles that are in the land. Don't take the pagan wives to yourselves. Well, they did. It became a huge problem for the nation of Israel because they turned and then went into idolatry because they they made leagues with these other nations based on marriage relationships. Solomon did this. He had his wives, he had his concubines. And a lot of the reason for those wives is he made peace treaties and leagues with the nations around him by taking the other king's daughters to become his wife. He's now at peace with the nations surrounding him. That wasn't God's plan. So now you end up with all these pagan relationships and now they go back after being exiled to Babylon for 70 years. God gives them an opportunity as a nation. You can go back and God was going to restore them. Now I want you to be mindful of something. Jeremiah chapter 3, where Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, watches Israel fall. They fall to the Babylonians because they they had turned their heart away from God and turned to the strange gods, turned to pagan wives and all these other things. In Jeremiah chapter 3, God gave Israel the written bill of divorcement. But then God took her back. It's really a beautiful story. So in the book of Ezra, Israel goes back to rebuild the temple and start the the reconstruction process of all that has been destroyed. But we still got to deal with the sin that took place. And so in Ezra chapter 10, verse 10, it says, Then Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives and adding to the guilt of Israel. We'll skip down to verse 19. And they gave their promise that they would put away, which is the phrase for divorce, their wives. And being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. The law of Moses anticipating the sin because of what Jesus told them, because of the hardness of your heart, this is what happened. And I think any of us would recognize when divorce takes place in a marriage, obviously it wasn't God's idea for that to be the case. 
But transgressions has happened. Sins happened there. Was, there. was it all one? Was it both? Yeah, it's probably all the above. But the bottom line is here we get to see, did divorce ever take place in Scripture? Yes. And it's in Deuteronomy 24, we actually see a written bill of divorcement for the sake of protection for a woman in this particular matter. Well, in Mark chapter 10, we'll, I'm going to skip some verses down to verse 10 to watch what the, watch what the disciples came back to ask. In, his, in the house, his disciples asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In Matthew chapter 19, to bring clarity to some of the things that were said, it says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality would be committing adultery. Well, now wait, wait. Let's bring some clarity to the subject. When adultery would take place in Scripture in the Old Testament, what was the, what was the rule of law? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 22 and Leviticus chapter 20, which is the law, would say that if there was adultery committed, well, you'd take them out and stone them. So what is Jesus referring to here? Because and you see the evidence of this. Remember the story when the woman who was taken in adultery, in the very act, as the leaders would say, she was in the, we caught her in the very act. And they're all ready to stone her. You remember what Jesus did? He knelt down, was just scratching on the ground, didn't say anything. And then ultimately he let them know, he who is without sin, you cast the first stone. What do they do? They start chucking rocks? Nope, they walked away. Why? She was not like she's committing adultery by herself. Somebody was with her. And these guys all know this. This is the religious leaders looking for another way to trap Jesus. But Jesus just elevated everything here to the place of mercy. And what did he tell her? He told her to go and sin no more. And she just experienced grace and mercy and blessing from God. Incredible. But this is also this whole scene that is being described is, is in light of the history. I want you to hear this. In Joseph, think about when Jesus was born. Sexual immorality among the people was common, just like it is today. And so when a man would be engaged to a woman, that engagement would typically last one year. The father of the groom and the father of the bride, they would make an agreement together. And there would be a betrothal or an engagement for one year. The reason for the one year is it would prove out to make sure that this woman was not unclean and that this marriage was a pure marriage. Well, now in light of that and in light of what Jesus has just taught his disciples, and I want you to think back in Matthew chapter 1, remember when, when Joseph found out about the Mary situation? Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, which means there's been no sexual intimacy here, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now, stop. What was it Joseph was contemplating? 
He's a just man. He doesn't want to make her a public example because Deuteronomy 22 says that if she's with child, they're not married. Obviously, she's done something wrong here, it would seem. And they would take her before the judge on a public platform and she's going to be found guilty. But he was mindful and just in this matter. So he put, was going to put her away, meaning divorce her secretly. That she's unclean. This is not right. We can't do this. So while he's contemplating this, That's when the angel appeared to him and said, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. That which is in her is of the Holy Spirit. He's who made her pregnant. Oh, I see what's happening. And now he gets the full picture. And so when you watch what Jesus is teaching the disciples, he's helping them to understand what is it that the Old Testament law taught? And what is it about where we're living today in terms of Jesus' day? But now he's going to take and he elevates this whole thing here in just a moment. But I want us to understand, what about in the church now? Everything I have shared with you applies to the Old Testament law and to the Jew of Jesus' day. But what about us? We're the Gentile church. What about us? You know, in 1 Corinthians is a letter to the Corinthian church that they had posed some questions to Paul, who was the church planter there and pastored them for a while. And they sent him in a letter and they asked him a lot of things about marriage, relationships. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he goes on to explain it. He explains first in the first part of the chapter that for the sake of fornication, if you have a sexual desire and sexual appetite, you're better to marry than to burn. And so if it would be a clear indicator that you're not necessarily hearted for singleness if you have a desire to be married. And then he taught about the the importance of the marriage relationship and even the intimacy of a marriage relationship that takes place. But then there's a great question that's posed, and this is what the Corinthian church was asking. So, one of us comes to Christ and is a Jesus follower and the other one's not. Now what do we do? Because now it's like we have light and darkness in the same space and that's not supposed to happen. So now what are we supposed to do? Well, that's where we come to in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. says, But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. So, hey, just because one of you becomes a Christ follower doesn't mean you need to instantly divorce the other. That was the point. But that was the concern. And as a matter of fact, he explained to them, he said, with a Christ follower in that home, the way he viewed that home is a holy home. It's a, it's a saved home. And that's how God was going to deal with that household. But he goes on in verse 15, though, to say, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So here's a statement. If the unbeliever in the house says, I have no interest in this Christianity thing and this is not the direction I'm going, I'm out. And though the believer may plead and desire for that marriage to be reconciled, they may depart. But here's what he just told them. But if they depart, the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Now, you know, growing up in church, when it comes to the subject of divorce, I've seen and heard a lot of things. Usually I hear the quotes from what Jesus said, 
a lot out of the Old Testament to legislate some kind of a law into the church. I'm just being straight here. It sometimes felt very uh, uh, discomforting for those that are going through the pain of divorce or have been in that pain. The church semantics often turn into very much judging other people's spiritual condition because if they look at the 1 Corinthians 7, it's, well, are they believing or unbelieving? Well, this person said they're saved, but now they're doing this and that. And so we end up as a church, I don't mean one community, I mean just the church in a whole of judging spirituality to determine whether this divorce is valid. As if any of us have the judgment seat to make that call. To determine if the sin's big enough. Does it meet the biblical standards of a big enough sin to justify the divorce so now it's all okay? Disregarding often abuses or abandonment. I can get pretty passionate about this subject. I may have even told you a story before. I had a lady in our church when I was pastoring in Florida who came. Her husband was an abuser. He was also an addict. And when he was... When he was on substances, he was a dangerous man. And my counsel to her was, you need to get away from him for a season to separate from him because he's not a safe man to be around. Well, we were going to provide a way for her to do that privately and safely and quietly. But there came a moment where she wanted to be her marriage to be resolved. She wanted this. He says he did. And I remember the day they came to my office. And uh, he said, so I understand that you told my wife we're supposed to be separated. And I said, well, I counseled her that because of the fact that you are an abuser and an addict and you're unsafe to be around, you are right. I did tell her to get away from you. And we're going to provide a way for that to happen. And I remember this was a scary moment, guys, because he was like, his fists were clenched, knuckles were white. He was trembling. And he said, if you weren't a man of the cloth, I'd come over that table right now and take your head off. And I was like, whoa, I don't know what it means to be a man of the cloth, but I'm glad I am one. <laughs> but here's the thing. I asked him, I said, so here's the deal. Would you agree that whenever you are on your substances, you're not a nice man to be around? And he would agree to all those things. I'm going to ask you, would you get the help I'm offering to you today? We'll pay for it. We'll get the help you need to be a man who can be a husband in your home and a father to those kids. And he wouldn't do it. Would not do it. He, would he was in love with the things of this world and in love with himself, and he would not go there. And it's sad because what do you do now? Well, I've been around enough church world environment that says to her, you just need to stand in there and you just keep taking it. And you just keep being the whipping post for this guy. Maybe someday he'll turn around. And I said, no, stop, <laughs> stop. I never counseled her to be divorced. I've never done that in my life. But we're going to put some boundaries here. And if the unbelieving departs, let him depart. Because the brother or sister is not in bondage in this case. What did God say? The, the desire here is for peace. Oftentimes when there's divorce that takes place, it seems like it's the scarlet letter in the church. 
as if you have to justify what happened and why did it happen. And, and it almost feels like a disqualifier for things that now, you know, I guess I'll just never be this or never be that. And I'm here to tell you that I just don't see that in the Word of God. Where do you find the grace and the mercy that covers over that? And watching Jesus' manner of dealing with people and watching Paul's manner of dealing with the believer and the unbeliever and watching for what the goal of the ministry of the church and helping people to see that. Does God endorse divorce? Well, this is complicated because you see it in the law. There's room for it. Matter of fact, you see where God gives the space here for the unbelieving to depart. And it's, oh, there you go. But is that God's design? Is it what he wants? Now, what Jesus takes this entire conversation that they're trying to trap him into, pick your team. So go ahead and say something about Herod's relationship. Pick your side. Are you going to side with the conservative guys? Are you going to side with the liberal guys on this subject? Who are you going to side with? And Jesus cuts it all to the chase and elevates the whole subject to right back to the beginning. In Mark chapter 10, verse 6, he said, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall, be co- excuse me, shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus just cut it all to the chase and just elevated it back to, here's what happened in the beginning. This was God's design. When God fashioned Adam in the garden and God gave him an Eve in the garden and those two were to become one flesh. This was the design of God. A male and a female coming together in, in union of marriage. He defined it here. I don't have to be the definer and find myself on the wrong side of everybody in the woke world that male and female is the way God describes marriage. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 pretty much takes care of business. It's the marriage relationship God has designed. God has designed this as His idea, not ours. It's the institution of God that is a divine institution, not just a civil institution. The man and woman were given a mission. That's why, remember, they were told to be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth. Well, of course that speaks into procreation, but not every married couple has children. But certainly, in God's design, when a married couple has children, sons of God, which is what He had charged Adam and Eve to have, were sons of God who would reproduce sons of God. That they would be worshipers of the living God. That was the design. So then they, the two shall become one flesh. And they're no longer two, but one. Hang on on that music, man. I'm going to be a few minutes here. They know when I have the last text, it's probably a good time for that music, but not today. So hang tight there. So, so these two come together as one flesh. And what are they told to do? The man's supposed to leave father and mother. Well, who's Adam's father and mother? There isn't any. But God's design was leave father and mother and cleave to your wife and establish a household. And each one would do that as head of household, but it's to join together as a holy union together, husband and wife. God uniquely designed this couple so that that God would provide a helper to even Adam. Remember, he was alone. It's not good that man should be alone. So God provided a helper for him. Well, these two come together in, a, in this holy union to become one. 
Does it make him higher and more than her? No, she was the helper for him. It's the same word helper that God used to describe himself. The Lord is my help, my very present help in time of trouble. We don't have a problem with that verse, but it's describing God. Same word that describes the wife. So these two come together in this with a, with a mission and a purpose to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Sons of God who would worship God. But we know this, sin entered into the equation. And when sin enters the equation, then God makes these provisions for protection and so that no one gets left into the space of being indebted or in destitute or just thrown out. Because why? Because of the hardness of hearts of men, sin takes place and then people get left behind. But God's design was this marriage union that would be a holy union. And it was so significant, this marriage union. And this is what I'm I just going to exalt one thing here. It's not to try to solve the debate of divorce. And that's not the point. It's to let's go with Jesus and elevate the issue of marriage. And if you're single today, God elevates the issue of singleness too. Because when you're single, you don't have the same responsibilities to care for a husband or care for a wife. And you're, you're enabled to serve in the areas of ministry that others cannot do that. It's giftedness to be single. So don't, don't ever think you're second class. No, not at all. But if you're in a marriage relationship, here's the thing. This marriage foreshadows something that is so incredible that what God did over here in Genesis was telling another story. And here's the story. It was when... Our husbandmen, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to this planet to seek and to save what's lost. And as he went to get his bride, how did he get his bride? Real similar to the way Adam got his. You remember Adam got put to sleep in the garden and God took the rib out of his side. And out of that rib, God fashioned a woman. You know what happened for Jesus? He got put to sleep on the cross and out of his side, they shoved a spear under his fifth rib. It's very descriptive in the book of John. Under the fifth rib, right to the heart, so that he would bleed out the blood and water. Why does that matter? Because it's by the blood of Jesus Christ we've been cleansed of all sin, right? And so by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that this blood covers our sin and believing on the resurrection of Christ, what happens? I am now... I'm now the bride of Christ. I'm his bride. The church becomes the whole bride of Christ. And what are we called out to do? He takes the seed of the gospel, 1 Peter chapter 1. He takes the seed of the gospel, puts it in the womb of the church so that the church then reproduces sons of God to worship God. That's the whole design. It's why discipleship matters because in the same way you have a baby and we've got lots of new babies. Next week, by the way, we're going to celebrate babies like no other, but we got lots of babies. It would be irresponsible for a mom to have a new baby and a mom and dad have a child in their home and not train them and, and they nurture them and they feed them carefully and then they, they're training them on how to obey. They're teaching them how to walk. They're te teaching them how to do all these things. Why? It's called discipleship. It happens in the home. It happens in the spiritual realm as well. It's God's design for the church to multiply and replenish. And it's why the Apostle Paul would have written in the, in the book of Ephesians. He wrote to that church at Ephesus in exalting the marriage relationship again. And he taught here, he said, now husbands and wives. He said, listen up. Wives, submit unto your own husbands. Well, that sounds real terrible. He said, no, come under the arm of your loving husband to be at his alongside or to be his helper. 
to be his companion, to be in one united with him, to be his lover, to be his friend. That's what it was designed to be. And the husbandman loves your wives as Christ loved the church. That is the design. And he loved the church and gave himself for it. It was the sacrifice. It was, it was this oneness that was to be designed for. It was the nurture to protect, provide. It was the pursuit of oneness. It was the romance. It was not to be independent, creating your own path, doing your own thing, off on your own. No. And so Paul exalts this idea of marriage. And he says, now listen, your marriage reveals Christ in the church. It's what gives us the understanding of how marriage is supposed to work, but it also gives the testimony and the witness and the picture to the world around us of what marriage is supposed to look like. And so now, what do we do with all this? Now, if you want to start that music, that'd be cool. Matter of fact, I want to invite our praise band to come up here and I'm going to wrap this up. First, I'd like to just tell you, if you're married, it's a wonderful gift from the Lord. It's a wonderful gift. It was designed by God as a divine institution intended to bring security, pleasure, companionship, oneness. It's a great testimony of the Lord himself. In much the way that the marriage becomes one, it's a picture of the triune God. It's designed to look that way. Your marriage is designed to be a witness, designed to be a testimony to the world that needs Jesus. When we decide as married couples to live in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord, it runs against the current of everything in our culture. I know that. But that's why it's the witness to a people may not believe in Jesus. If you're married, but things aren't going well, it happens. I know. My plea to you would be that the church is designed to be the place of help. It's part of the role of a pastor, a counselor, an elder, to be an alongsider. It's the role of the church to rally around in prayer and support and encouragement, maybe mentorships. I would encourage you if things are struggling at home, reach out for help. I realize the barrier to that is, is why well, I don't want anybody to know. God already knows. And God's put you in a church for your safety and for his glory. If you're single in this room today, by whatever means you're single, I'd encourage you to be content in your singleness. You have a greater opportunity to serve the Lord without the constraints of caring for a husband or a wife. Maybe you desire to be married. And if that's your story, praise God. Be patient. Be faithful. 
And be cautious not to use God's church as a dating service. It's common among the, these days. Bounce around from church to church to church to maybe I can find my mate in another church. I plead with you, don't prostitute the church that way. This isn't a dating service. Be faithful. God knows exactly who you need and where to place them. If you've experienced divorce in your own relationship, in your families, I know that you've experienced something that is exceedingly painful. Many things that happen around, even in a church environment, remind you back to things that are really hard. Sometimes, when I have visited with people who have had divorce in their past, they feel like maybe they're second-class Christians somehow. And if I'd like to just encourage you this morning that there's no such thing. We all stand at the foot of the cross. We all are sinners in need of a Savior. And there's no hierarchy here, uh, no second class, no scarlet letters, no. It's not your defining mark. And by all means, it doesn't keep you from becoming a Christian. I've actually heard that said. I'd like to become a Christian, but this happened in my life over here. I just feel disqualified. You know what qualifies you for salvation? Is to know that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior. And by faith, when you believe in Him and trust Him, just like everyone else on the face of the planet, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And we all need a Savior. And Jesus is the Savior. And by faith, when you call out to Him and ask Him to save you, He responds to that prayer of faith and saves you according to the Word of God. When I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ died for my sin, was buried for me, and rose again from the grave on the third day, the Bible says when I believe that and confess to Him, He's Lord, He saves me. And I can know that I have eternal life in Christ. And that's for everyone. No one excluded. These religious leaders tried to trap Jesus. But what did Jesus do? Didn't fall prey to all the arguments and the sides and does this or does that. No, he goes right back to the one thing. The union of marriage, the beauty of marriage, the design of marriage, the purpose of marriage. For the glory of the Lord. 